Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. I'm your host, Steve Meredith, and I'm joined in studio today, as I usually am, by President Wyatt. Hi, Scott. Hello, Steve. It's great to be here today. It's great to be here with you always. And we have a very special guest. Uh, I should say that this particular set of podcasts that we're doing right now is focusing on innovation in higher education. And you and I have been fascinated by what our guest has accomplished and have wanted to talk to him for some time. So we're very excited to have him. Why don't you introduce him? We are delighted to have Dr. Savi Galil, who is the John P. Imlay Jr. Dean of Computing at Georgia Tech. Welcome, Savi. Thank you. I'm really happy, very happy to be here with you. And uh, we're talking to you. You're in Georgia, so I suspect that it's warmer where you are than where we are right now. It's not that warm. (laughs) (laughs) My brother-in-law is from uh, Atlanta, and he said he's not going back until they air-condition the whole state. (laughs) But, But this time of the year, it's a beautiful, beautiful place to be. Yes. Uh, you know the nickname of Atlanta is Hotlanta. That's right, <laughs> Atlanta. Well, you are probably leading one of the most innovative programs at any university, and and not only is it incredibly innovative, but it's being done at one of the country's most prestigious universities um, or institutes, Georgia Tech. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, the um, master's degree of computer science that you have on a MOOC? So this is a online degree, MOOC-based. So the courses are not exactly MOOCs, but uh, a, an approximation of MOOCs. A, it is the program itself is identical to the face-to-face on-campus program. Almost identical, and I can elaborate later, admissions requirements. The same courses, the same projects, the same problem sets, uh, the same material, the same curriculum. Uh, And the... It started, actually, you're talking to me almost at the five-year anniversary. It started in January 2014 with 380 students. This term, we have 7,688 students, and according to Harvard researchers, already when we were half the size, we were the largest master program in computer science in the U.S. and probably the world. Uh, we already graduated 1370 students, but this year and from now on, every year we will graduate 
at least a thousand students, graduates, and this number may reach 1,500 in a couple of years. And uh, this is important because in this context, big is beautiful because there is a huge need for computing professionals in the U.S. market and actually in the many other countries' markets. Uh, actually, uh, NBS, uh, the BLS, Bureau of Labor Statistics, with the NSF, National Science Foundation, came up with the following numbers. That currently, and that was a few months ago, there are 500,000 jobs in computing without applicants. And this number will increase to a million uh, by 2020. So in some sense, we are fulfilling a, a great national need, which gives me great pleasure. Well, you um, and most of our most of our listeners, this is um, when you talk about the number of jobs that are open that we can't fill in this country in computer science, and then your method of delivering it both on campus, face to face, and then through a MOOC. Some of our listeners probably don't know what we mean when we say MOOC. So MOOC is a massive open online course. And MOOCs were introduced uh, in October of 2011. And in 2012, uh, the New York Times called it the year of the MOOC. Uh, this is an online course, and I can explain if you wish the difference between normal online, because online have been with us for quite some time, uh, and MOOC-based, uh, and MOOCs. Uh, and MOOCs, uh, uh, the first MOOC was in October of 2011, and I think there were 150,000 students at least started this MOOC. So, so it's online course that is built for scaling. So you can teach a relatively large number of students. Uh, uh, it's different from uh, from the normal online courses. If you wish, I can explain a little bit the difference. Yeah, I think it's helpful you know, to know that the difference between a regular it, online and a MOOC. So distance learning existed in the U.S for over 50 years. I think Stanford had distance learning uh, from the 60s. I was at Columbia before, and we had it since the 80s. Uh, basically, courses were recorded, you know, videotaped, uh, and it, it was put on a tape, on a CD, and students uh, all over the U.S. and possibly the world could get the courses uh, uh, and take the courses, uh, uh, by getting uh, the disc or, or the tape in the mail. And they took the course. But but it was has been until the MOOCs uh, quite primitive in the sense that there was very, very little interaction between professor and students. And essentially it was a recorded, recorded course. Uh, and uh, there were exams, and uh, and some of the and in the 90s when the, when the internet showed up, 
these courses were scripted to the internet so you could take them online. And since the 19s, they were a, a, a quite a number of universities that taught it online. And uh, it, it still was quite limited. A MOOC is built actually like a, a movie. You script it, you tape it, you edit it. The units are very small, several minutes. So uh, every, seven, every several minutes, there is a quiz or a query to make sure that the students follow the concepts and they cannot progress before they follow the concepts. So it's in some sense pedagogically also much better than the previous uh, online courses. Right. Well, if uh, you can't... Ah, we only, we don't, you know, we uh, we are charging money. <laughs> we have we are degree uh, providing. So we have, in addition, advisors and office hours and, and much more help if needed. Because on regular MOOCs, the students are essentially on their own. So in some sense, MOOC, the normal MOOCs can be viewed as a high-level textbook, you know, with a video, but, but very little interaction. Well, and it seems in some ways the student is um, more responsible for her or his education because they're the ones that are driving themselves through, and then you don't let them go more than a few minutes without a quick little quiz to make sure they're listening. In some ways, um, that sounds better than face-to-face. <laughs> actually, I can later make some comparison. There are some aspects where our courses in our program are superior. Not all. A, a face-to-face has its advantages, especially for very small classes. Like, it's 20, 30, lots of interaction. You can change directions many times. This is not achieved, but, but even with larger classes on campus, if you have 300 students in the class, in the classroom, it's very limited. They, uh, after three questions, the professor says, hey, I cannot answer anymore. I have to continue. Well, you talked about this starting. This, this is... Um um, you started about Stanford, talked about Stanford uh, starting some of these distance courses. My father, when he was in the Air Force in the late 1950s, I don't know what year it would have been, but it would have been um, somewhere between 1957 and 1960 when he was stationed in Elmendorf Air Force Base in Alaska, took a correspondence course uh, in mathematics. And, uh, so correspondence course is the, is the earlier version of of distance learning, and and you know open universities usually are built on them, though they are now moving into online. They moved to online, but they they yeah there were correspondence courses, but that's even the predecessor of the videotapes. Yeah, when we talk to students today about that. And I explain, so something came in the mail, you opened it up, you studied it, you read it, you mailed it back. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard for them to wrap their minds around yeah, that. Yeah, it really is hard in the pre-internet world. But this has been going on for a long time, hasn't it? A long time. 
Yes. It is in indeed, it's online, even what we do, you need a certain level of motivation by the students. It has not worked well when the students are far less motivated. So can we talk about your students for a second? You, I think, had expressed in an article that we read that there was some concern in some quarters that your MOOC version of the degree would would steal from your face-to-face group and that you would be somehow cutting in on the same group of students. But that hasn't, that hasn't been the case, has so it? No, it has not cannibalized at all because uh, there are several reasons. But... Uh, we can prove it, and then, by the way, also the Harvard people found out, uh, this is the, the proof is because our students and the on-campus students are of coming from very different population. And if you wish, I can uh, elaborate. Yeah, yeah. please. Uh, uh, first of all, the online students are older. So uh, on campus are usually immediately after bachelor and they are 23, 22, 23. The average of our online students is 33, the age. Uh, I think one of them graduated, it was 69, but uh, the average is 33, so they're much younger. Also, international versus domestic is reversed. On campus, majority in, in some university huge majority are international students in our case they are big part indian and second chinese in some universities it's, it's the other way around the online master program we call it omscs online ms in cs omscs started with 87 percent domestic now it's a notch under 70. Uh, more and more uh, internet, first of all, is more and more international uh, students uh, find out about it. And the reason for the uh, fact that we did not cannibalize the on-campus population, because it's international, and students who come to study master program in the U.S., First and foremost, come for the visa. If you give them work, they might not even go to a master. So they have the very high price that they pay for the master tuition is essentially the price to get into the, in the U.S. And when they study online, they don't get a visa. Right. Well, it's interesting that your face-to-face program taught in the United States is primarily, if I heard you right, is primarily serving international students, where your online MOOC is primarily serving domestic students. Indeed, indeed. It's, uh, that's, uh, that's the case. Uh, however, uh, you shouldn't view the on-campus program negatively because most of these students that come, they want to stay, and, and they stay. Of course, yeah. I, yeah. No, uh, no now, now, with the somewhat difficult immigration constraints, uh, and immigration is not always r- rational, uh, some, some go back because they, they, they find it difficult, but most of them want to stay and to work here. 
Yeah. So, so in a sense, these graduates are also serve uh, the, the need in the U.S. You're bringing people from other countries, turning them into highly educated, skilled workers, and then they're building the United States economy. Yes. But, but, but the, the, the irony is that sometimes you still give them so much hustle that they, they have to go back, which is kind of uh, unfortunate. Yeah. So I, I would be remiss. Uh, we've been talking about international students, and our listeners are probably thinking, um, we've been listening to Zvi talk for a while, and to, my, our, to our ears, he doesn't sound like he was born in Atlanta. Why don't you can you can you share just a little bit about your background how you how you ended up at Georgia Tech because you have quite an international uh, resume and uh, give us just a little bit of your background, Doctor Galu. I, I was born in Israel and I lived uh, in my first twenty five years in Israel. Uh, I served in the Israeli army. I also served in two wars. Uh, I got BAs, BS and MS in applied math in Tel Aviv University. Uh, and then I went to Cornell and got my PhD. I, 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 I worked in postdoc in IBM Yorktown Heights, IBM Research Center, Watson Research Center. I then went back to Israel for six years uh, and uh, and was in Tel Aviv University. Uh, every summer, though, I spent in Berkeley. In 82, I came to Columbia, and I, later I, I worked 25 years at Columbia University in New York, though I was still for a while half and half with Tel Aviv University. In 89, I became chair of computer science at Columbia. In 95, I became dean of engineering at Columbia. And in 2007, I returned to Israel to be president of Tel Aviv University, which is the largest university in Israel. But in 2009, a little over two years, I resigned. I don't want to get into the details. I fought some corruption, and the powerful people were corrupt. And I went back to the faculty. Uh, when the telephone from Georgia Tech came, and in, uh, in 2010, I became the dean of uh, co- co- the College of Computing at Georgia Tech, and that's where, where I've been since 2010. Were you engaged in uh, at Columbia in any sort of online learning, or did you become a, a devotee of that sort of delivery? And no, no, and- uh, we ha- Columbia has a. a what they call and still call it, even though it's misnomer, CVN, Columbia Video Network. Uh, we're in the engineering school. And actually, I grew it quite a lot uh, when I was dean. Uh, but then it actually shrunk some because Columbia tuition is enormous. It's like 70000 the degree costs $70,000. Uh, and and in the past, companies uh, funded students, but with the, with the uh, economic situation becoming much more competitive, they couldn't afford to pay a, a large number of students $70,000 for a year and a half or two. Uh, so the number has uh, gone somewhat down. 
But I had an online program and I, I built it. And uh, actually, my predecessor as dean wanted to close them because they were losing money. We we made quite a lot of money uh, then, uh, uh, our distance learning. So I was involved with distance learning before. How do you um, tell us? You know, when when MOOCs first started, massively open online courses. When that first came out, there seemed to be, and we remember when this happened right. as if it was yesterday. Yep. There are all these different uh, schools that are doing some, some really big things. And then, for me at least, the big surprise was when Georgia Tech said, we're going to create a master's degree MOOC. So here is a really credible school that's creating this master's degree. Um, what was it? that was the genesis of this? Why did um, Georgia Tech, why did you... So, MOOC, uh, you know, as I said, the, 2012 was the year of the MOOC by the New York Times. And there were all sorts of predictions, and some of them exaggerated. <laughs> Sebastian Tran, the CEO of Udacity, and my partner in this, he kind of predicted that many universities will not exist in five years or ten years. Uh, of course, he had to t to swallow what he said, but it looked like uh, MOOCs have a, a great future. And we also had MOOCs uh, at Georgia Tech, uh, which were, you know, quite successful. And in September of 2013, Sebastian Tran visited me here in Georgia Tech. And he told me, Tzvi, let us do a master's degree for $1,000. Uh, you know, because then the spirit was, everything was free, you know. So let's do master's degree. In, uh, and uh, immediately I told him, I'm pretty good with numbers, especially with a dollar sign. And I told him, $1,000 will not do, maybe 4000 uh, However, the, our leadership uh, wanted to be a little more cautious. So we ended up with the cost uh, between six and seven thousand dollars for the entire degree. That's when uh, out-of-state students pay, pay something like forty-two thousand dollars for the degree here. So uh, I was fortunate that the provost uh, uh, let us do it, and the president, and they helped us uh, get it through the board of regents. So what happened after this visit, that was not, we didn't start right away. I wanted to do it, uh, but I only, I'm only the dean. <laughs> I cannot, as you know, even you as a president know that you cannot tell faculty what to do. You need a buy-in. Uh, and I, I created a task force that worked for six and a half months uh, to define everything, to define, uh, and they, the most important concern by them were the three concerns of quality, quality, quality. They decided that we will not water it down. We will not dilute it. It must have the same quality, which I believe we stuck to it. Uh, so for six and a half months, we had the town hall meeting. Sebastian came several times, and they prepared some uh, document and after uh, uh, six and a half months, we had, we had the vote. And I told the faculty right in the beginning, if you don't want to do it, we will not do it. 
And I and my uh, senior uh, executive, uh, senior uh, uh, associate dean, uh, did not participate in this task force. Uh, I, I, but we, I said, if you don't want it, we will not do it. But, you know, this task force, I put some people that were already, some of them were teaching MOOCs. So uh, I think immediately there was a wish by many of the faculty uh, to do it, uh, to be kind of at the forefront. And I and some other felt that if we don't do it, somebody else will. And pretty soon. So, so after the six and a half months, uh, we had a vote. 75% of the faculty voted for to do it, uh, which uh, is quite amazing that the faculty will vote for a change. As you know, faculty usually are against every change. Uh, even if it's in their benefit because they believe, and many times justifiably, that there's something behind what they know about it. So, so they voted uh, to do it. And then uh, we went to the Board of Regents. The president and the provost prepared the Board of Regents. Uh, and in May, on May 14th, 2013, uh, 2013 uh, the Board of Regents approved it. So then we went to work and created the five courses, the first, first courses, we announced it. We created the five courses and started in January of 2014. And we started to create courses. Now we have 30 courses, and there are 10 in various stages, mostly early ones of preparation. So we, um, so that's, that's how it all started. So when you... When you ventured into this, um, you've talked about if we don't do it, somebody else will. Um, we need to make sure the quality is high, those kinds of things. Um, but was there a principle or a vision at the back of this that Georgia Tech is going to make money from this or we're going to democratize the education in the world? We're going we're to make it so that – I mean, what, what was the guiding – vision uh, to me personally making the money was not uh, primary i wanted uh, to uh, our motto is accessibility uh, through affordability and technology so the accessibility was the most important thing now making money uh, at, the, at the back of my mind and we are making money and i can explain you later I believe that probably if, it's, if we scale it enough, now scaling here doesn't mean hundreds of thousands of students. It's a master program. So, uh, but, but having it large enough also will create revenue. The, now, now the, the most expensive part is making the courses. Initially, it cost us almost $300,000 to make a course because it's like making a film. Uh, uh, with staff that is expert in some of these things, you know, uh, uh, and uh, uh, we 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 get better in this, and now it's more between 150 and 200. Still very very expensive. What actually helped us tremendously, and at that time we didn't realize it, is the help we got from AT&T. Sebastian Tran and 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 I went to the leadership of AT&T. And actually, early January of 2013, uh, two months before we actually voted to, to do it, 
and they gave us the, in, in the next day $2 million. A year later, they give, gave us another $2 million. Without the, the help was crucial because without the help, uh, our start would have been much slower. Uh, and, and, and if your start is much slower, the naysayer can have the upper hand. Because Georgia Tech, it does not have large endowment. It cannot like Harvard and MIT who invested $60 million in edX. We don't have such kind of money. I cared much less about the money, more about the accessibility. I was influenced by a book by Richard DeMillo. I'm not sure you read it. It's called From Abelard to Apple, The Fate of American Colleges and Universities. And where he speaks about us, uh, many of the drawbacks uh, uh, of, of American universities, especially tuition, but that he, he, he discussed other, thing, other things. So I, I was influenced by this. And I wanted to, to find a way of making a higher education much more accessible. So a lot of prestigious universities like Georgia Tech pride themselves in who they turn away. So, uh, so, so I can get into the several ways that our program is different. <laughs> yeah. That, so one of them, your pro- one of them is the, pro- the, the one that, that draws the maximum, the, the biggest uh, attention uh, was the price. Let's call them minor, minor earthquake. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and huge attention by the media. I can get to it later. But there are several other things that distinguish us, and you hit on the second of them. We actually, it's a paradigm shift. Actually, what you said is, is true. Universities become prestigious not by admission, by rejection. And they reject, you know, I think Stanford undergraduate accepts 5%. That means they reject 95%. That means that about 30 or 40 or even 50% that are rejected are probably as good and in some cases better than those that are admitted uh, because they don't have the space for it. But it doesn't mean that it's fair. So we didn't follow this paradigm. We accept everybody that has the capability to succeed. We, uh, so so in, in a sense... Uh, our on-campus selectivity, which is the percentage of people you admit from the number of applicants, uh, is about 10%. The selectivity of the online is uh, 66%. So two out of three. Uh, in fact, in recent years, the quality has gone up. So, so actually, in the last round, it was 72%. So wow. and we don't feel... We, we, and, and, you know, these students... Many, not all of the courses that are taught online are also taught on campus in parallel. Uh, and the online students perform comparably, in sometimes a little better. You know, statistically, there is no difference. Sometimes a little better, sometimes a little worse. The same class, we see. So here we accepted two out of three, and here we accepted one out of ten, and that is good. Now, uh, 66%, that's our admission. One thing that we are different from the on-campus is the survival rate is around 60%. So we lose, we lose 40% of them along the way. 
and, and that's because the program is difficult. It's the same requirement. Students tell us they devote 25 to 30 hours a week per course. And some of them, when they start, they see that they cannot handle both work, family, and study. So it's, it explains why the number of drops is higher. But other than that, the, the performance, the performance in all the courses, in on campus, it's, it's, it's very close to 100%. There are very few course students drop out. And usually if they have some crisis or mental problem or something, you know, or something in the family, something very unusual for them to, to, draw, to, 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 to give it up. Savi, so um, we've been talking a little bit about the admission standards for online versus face-to-face and the, the fact that one way that a university increases its prestige or its reputation is to turn away larger numbers which which um which is interesting in from a lot of levels especially when we're struggling so hard to get people into these jobs in America but what has this massively open online program in computer science done for Georgia Tech's reputation has it has it increased your reputation has it decreased it i believe so there was no formal study but a, a, I humbly or not so humbly believe <laughs> that it has been tremendous to the Georgia Tech brand. Partly because many more people now know where Georgia Tech is, what is Georgia Tech, and may even find Georgia on the map. And we... Uh, our college progressed in, in the ranking. In the U.S. news, uh, we were 10th in 2010. We moved twice up. And in, in last year, we were number eight. Uh, in the times of higher education, that's in the U.S. That's graduate programs. In times of higher education, we last time, a year ago, we were, they do it every year, we were eight, now we are seventh in the world. I exactly don't know what they measure. Maybe the, the undergraduate program, I'm not sure. Our brand improved considerably. I believe so. I, I don't have any proof. Uh, maybe some uh, special companies that can measure it uh, tell us. Uh, I, this is my only gut, gut feeling. Have you had any difficulty recruiting faculty, high-quality faculty to teach? To teach on the online or to teach? We, I don't know if you know the situation in computer science, which, by the way, online, online can help you too. I, I don't know if you know it. Well, here's my so, question. Uh, the questions... Uh, uh, no, uh, they are very difficult to hire people. Very... Uh, 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 Everybody competes, and every everybody approaches everybody else. Yeah, so the, the question really is this. One way to measure if your reputation's increasing is how um, would-be faculty members see your program and how students see your program. So if, if applications are going up and if um, 
other faculty members uh, see your program so since, well? Uh, since uh, OMSCS started, the master, the, the number of master applicants to on-campus and on-campus, the on-campus program went up by 125%, so more than doubled in the last four years. They're not seeing this MOOC as diminishing the program, the, the diploma they're no. seeking. No, 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 no. We had the more than double number of applicants. Now, undergraduates, uh, it was five times, but everybody sees increase. I think we are in the high end of increases. So in the, in the last four years, we saw a, a factor of five or six. In the last 10 years, we saw a factor of 10 or 11 of number of applicants to undergraduate computer science. If you remember, in the early 2000s, there was a dip because there was a scale of outsourcing. Right. That's impressive because there's a lot of universities that are struggling to keep their enrollments up. Yeah. No, no, we, uh, we are also huge. We are also huge on campus. We have 2,400 uh, majors. Do you think this um, master's degree in computer science that's being offered by Georgia Tech through this massively open online course program. Should that expand to other master's degrees? Not just computer it science? Has, uh, the answer is it has expanded. We have now uh, at least 22 followers. Really? Uh, some of them in computer science, but... Uh, for example, the first follower was a program in University of Illinois, which is called IMBA, like iPhone, lowercase i, capital MBA. So they are the first follower, which, by the way, they fully admit that they are followers. They came here and learned everything. Uh, the most recent followers don't mention us. Uh, you know, the other, Udacity actually is not in this market, but Coursera has a half a dozen, edX has, a, has half a dozen, and FutureLearn has several. FutureLearn is one in London. So they are, I, we are aware of 22 followers. And on top of it, there is a MicroMasters uh, that was invented by edX, which, which means, uh, and started the first one at MIT, that half of the degree you do online, like, like OMSCS, and half of it you come to campus. But you, but you can come to several campuses, several universities, because they work together. So MIT, the, the bottom line is not many go for the second half because it's full price. So they don't pay 66000 they pay 33000 for the second half. And, and MIT doesn't take that many. Uh, of them anyway, but, but they can go to other universities that are kind of partners in this. So, so there are about 50 MicroMasters, uh, and in some sense, they're also following us. Wow. So uh, there is growth, and there should be growth, is what you're telling there us. There is. Uh, it's mostly so far, and it's natural like this, to those areas uh, you know, data science, accounting, you know, those areas that the job market is big, you know. Uh, this is those areas where, where 
which in universities are the most attractive to students. So, though, you know, people ask me, hey, what about other areas, other liberal social science or whatever, or everything, I believe you don't know if you don't try. And even if you try, you may do it wrong in the first time, okay? I believe it's possible to teach many more subjects that we now see possible. Also, the technology keeps improving. That's interesting. How does a student begin this program? Does it, does it um, happen at the beginning of semesters, or can a student sign yes, up and start? Uh, uh, we, our, we have three semesters, fall, spring, and summer. Uh, like in, uh, in the normal, and in, in the, in the running parallel. Initially, Sebastian, Sebastian Tran is, you know, the CEO and founder of Udacity. He had the idea of having it totally free, <laughs> totally flexible, but uh, the registrar at Georgia Tech almost got a cardiac arrest. <laughs> uh, you know, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to handle this. They cannot handle this. If, if, if every, every student come whenever they want, you know, it's much, much more difficult. So, so in some sense, that's different from the MOOCs where you're totally free to do it in any time and you don't, you're not responsible for anybody except yourself. Here, uh, so uh, there are certain uh, uh, time posts like uh, when they have to submit exercises, when they or when, when the midterm is, or when the, or, or when the final is, uh, which, which is this week for the, for, for the fall term. Uh, but in between, it's more flexible. So, so it's not, that's one of the ways that it's not exactly a MOOC. Also, we have advising, you know, we have office hours, we have a support system. You cannot charge uh, tuition without some support system. So it does start and end with, normal semester uh, length. So in that way, it's slightly different. Yeah. If it wasn't for the registrar and financial aid and some of those things, you could start at any time. You could start it every Monday, I guess. (laughs) Possibly, possibly. (laughs) But then, uh, you know, it's, it's also good for the faculty and TAs that in some weak way, uh, overlook the progress and see if there are major problems, if all of them are more or less synchronized, you can see it. If everybody is in a different point, it's a big mess. So you, you currently have more than 7,000 students coming into this uh, January cohort. This, this semester, no, no, this semester, which started in August, uh, we had 7688. Oh. Uh, we don't know yet how many in January. We will know probably towards the end of January, uh, and the number can be as high as 8,500 or even close to 9,000. Wow. In can, one master's degree mm, program. Yeah. Can, can you give us an idea of the, the scope then of, of the number of teaching assistants, the number of faculty? How are, how are faculty compensated at this significantly lower tuition rate? So actually you asked me five questions and I tried to answer I, them. I did, sorry. Uh, it's okay. It's fine. Teaching assistant was my biggest worry. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, on campus we have one teaching assistant for every 25 students. 
Online, there's one for every 50, but with this large number, so I just give you an example. This term, we have 232 teaching assistants. Uh, but initially, when we started and we, I thought about bigger numbers, that was my biggest worry. Where will we find them? And we need also more teaching assistants for our own campus because the numbers here are also big. So initially, I, I, I thought that will limit the growth. That will severely limit the growth. And then I had the idea to use uh, some of the online students uh, who took the course to T8. You know, like we do, I'm sure you do it in your university, so some bright undergraduates can TA courses after they took them. Right. And they're usually very cheap. You know, uh, undergraduate TA are wonderful. And of course, I cannot take them for a master's degree. Uh, so originally it was master's students, but we don't have enough master's students. Uh, here to do it. Uh, but then I had the idea, oh, we will take online students. But then two nights later, I lost sleep and told myself, stupid you, why would they do it? They are paid peanuts. These people are work full-time jobs, most of them. Why would they do it? Here is a surprise. They do it. <laughs> they love to do it. They want to do it. They love to do it. The, a, they're getting, no, I'm not sure how much they're getting from it, you know, the interaction, you know, trying to explain things to students, they're getting something out of it. A, two, a, they want to give back. And I'll give you just this semester, 230 students, TAs. Only 87 of them, only 85 of them are master students on campus. 100 are online students. 47 are online graduates. They want to TA after they graduate. Well, that's a loyal group of students. Uh, because they love it, and we, one of my goals also inside, inside the university was to build a community. And we, I believe we were somewhat successful. Yeah, that, that's a loyal group. So that's... Uh, so that's about the TAs, you know. Uh, 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 and so far, you know, uh, you know, if if and we have been growing slowly, so so these changes were not. Uh, uh, so every semester, it's a little bit of a challenge because you don't know until the first week of the semester how many students you will have. And finally, 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 this. Online students, they work full-time and do it not for the money. In many cases, do a better job. Uh, also, they are paid by the hour. The on-campus, they get stipend and tuition, and if a number of uh, students in the class drops, uh, they still get the same. The online students, they get a small, small compensation and by the working hour. So that's, that's about the TA. You asked another question about compensation, and actually this is, the, the task force came up with this suggestion. Uh, actually, faculty, faculty teach in the online program not as part of the teaching obligation. It's additional work with additional compensation. So outside of their regular load. Yes. And the, the pay is as three components. Uh, we decided not to have it by enrollments. 
so if you class as a hundred or eight hundred, you a class with eight hundred for fifty students, you're not paid more. Uh, but first to make the course, to make the course, twenty thousand dollars. It's a lot of work. That's not high because you work on it for three. You work on it for only for for close to one semester. About one semester, you work to make the course. It's a lot of work. You script, you edit, you, you tape, you edit, you replace pieces. It's, it's a long process and arduous. So 20,000 to, to prepare the course. Now there is a notion of instructor of record when you offer the course every semester. Now, the, the creator of the course has to be the instructor of record in, for the, in the first time the course is effort, only in the first time. Amazingly, most of them won't do it again and again, maybe also for the money. They get tenth, the instructor of record, whether it is the creator or whether it's somebody else, they get $10,000. This is not, this is quite good because you don't teach, you know, the, the, the classes or the videos. But you may have office hours, you might interact somewhat with the students. You, you might give most of it to the TAs, to the head TA, there is a hierarchy in these large courses. Uh, so 10,000 is pretty good. Every time, and you know, in some cases, we had some faculties that left Georgia Tech, so somebody else is teaching it. And in one or two cases, they didn't want to continue, but almost all of them do it a semester after a semester. Sometimes not in the summer, but in the summer we have a limited offering because the summer semester is somewhat shorter and not all the courses can be offered in the summer. And, and the third component is like royalty, even though technically or legally it's not really a royalty. Every time the course is offered, a, 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 the creator a, gets $2,500. That's like, you know, for using your IP. So some people that left Georgia Tech still get a check of $2,500 every semester. So it's like a residual check for a performer or something like that? That, that... Uh, This is like, in, uh, it's like royalty. Yeah. It's like using UIP, but, but uh, for some legal reasons that I don't exactly understand, it's, it's not exactly royalty. So basically, if somebody has a course uh, and it's offered three semester, and he teaches it, he's a instructor record, he gets each time twelve and a half, thirty-seven and a half thousand dollars, which is not bad. Uh, of course, executive MBA in many schools, they get uh, $50,000 just to, uh, if somebody scratches the back or something. So uh, salary, uh, there the pay is much higher. But thirty-seven and a half thousand dollars is not peanuts, for sure. No, no, of course. They like it. Hey, I'm uh, also from my Colombia days. I'm a strong believer in incentives. Have you had Have you had a hard time uh, recruiting faculty to help, or do they? Is that pretty simple? Uh, so far, we have thirty courses, <laughs> and ten ten in various ways of various. Our master program has specialization, and we have on campus about a dozen. Online, we have four. Uh, and uh, we, uh, with another course or two, we, uh, it, the number will be six or seven. And uh, we are working on it. 
and we are working on some attractive courses. So, so like uh, blockchain, uh, like deep learning uh, uh, courses like this. So, um, usually the faculty, you know, uh, with success, uh, faculty, it's easier even to, to get some of them to do it. Um, you know, we, uh, 75% voted for, we don't know exactly who are the other 25. Uh, once we succeeded, uh, you know, uh, everybody is on the board. So, so the original vote of 75%, and you don't know who the 25 were that voted against it, but everybody seems on board now. Is that, is that right? Yes. Actually, in a couple of cases, we know that they were against, but they actually said so. They said we were against, but uh, I'm changing my mind. <laughs> we didn't take another vote, though. Well, you, you've, uh, you've described that the outcomes are comparable and the quality's good and you're reaching the goals. Success typically, uh, success typically wins over converts, I guess. Uh, indeed, indeed. And uh, so far, you know, I, um, you know, when you, uh, I'm sure that you and your university all have always have fears that something can be go terribly wrong. Uh, so far, so good. What? What have you? Um, what would you describe as the surprises? Is there been um, a leading surprise that's positive, and has there been a, a, a leading disappointment as you've rolled this out and now have uh, five years' experience? Frankly, I don't have any negative surprise, and I'm surprised by this. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't. The students love us. By the way, the event I'm going uh, at 5.30 is the reception to the graduates, a master and PhDs uh, that will graduate. Uh, uh, tomorrow is the commencement. Uh, the number of OMSCS students that are graduating is 420 this term. Maybe 100, 150 will be in the commencement. I'm, I'm not sure how many will come to the to, to to the event today, maybe half or more. Uh, so, and by the way, when I meet them all over the world, they love us. They, uh, many of them come to me and say, we couldn't or wouldn't do it without you. Uh, and it, it's an uh, infinite pleasure to hear this. So, negative note. The surprise is that one of them is that uh, uh, nothing so far, touch wood, uh, has gone wrong. Uh, on occasion, we have minor problems, as usual, and fix them. Uh, one big surprise is the use of social media. So, and this, and here, the, it's a big advantage of OMSCS on the face-to-face. -face. Students in universities normally do not use social media for learning. They, uh, you know, even though almost all of them were born in Facebook, so uh, nothing new for them is social media. Uh, students in the online first for classes that direct use is Piazza. I, I don't know. I, I'm sure uh, you probably know what Piazza is. Uh, and and they, where, they, where they answer questions, help one another, explain one another why some points were deducted. But in addition, there are 70, 
groups on Google Plus. They have LinkedIn, they have uh, Facebook, but the biggest is Google Plus where they have 70 groups uh, self-generated. And there are groups, OMSCS, Geography, I met the OMSCS in Silicon Valley, and OMSCS Beijing, there is OMS, there is group by course, and there are more people than students. I don't know who are the other ones. So there is about a thousand more participants in this Google Plus, and, and as you know, probably heard, Google Plus is closing, and we will have to find a substitute. Right. But, but the use of social media, the, the volume, the amount they use, is, is unbelievable, and we did not anticipate it. So do you think that your students, this is an interesting thing that you're observing, is the dramatic use of social media. Who would you say is more connected, the face-to-face or the online students? So the face-to-face have the face-to-face correction, but they don't use at all. The, I cannot generalize. In some cases, they might, but not in this level. So, again, this is all that feeling, much more in the online. It comes also to substitute the face-to-face. I teach an online um degree program, master's degree program in music technology as my faculty assignment. And uh, I've been interested to note that um, my online, I I learn more as a teacher. I think I know more about the the real thoughts and ideas of my students, their hopes and dreams for their careers and so forth in in the online student world than I do from my face-to-face students. Yeah, because you make use of the social media. Right, right, and and there seems to be, there seems to be a more openness. They they they're af- not afraid to say things at the keyboard that they might be afraid to say inside of a regular class. Have you found that? Uh, probably yes, but sometimes you regret what you say. Well, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we know a few people that fit that category. Dr. Galil, you mentioned uh, it's VL. Sorry, I, I'm old school and call people by their by their <laughs> formal names. Um, you mentioned uh, and have mentioned Sebastian Tron throughout and Udacity. They've been a, a partner for you. What has been their role in the development of the program? We have been using the platform. So when I mentioned edX uh, having certain programs and then. Coursera, there is this platform that potentially we could create, but this this existed from the MOOCs. So there was a platform. So they they were running the Initially, they thought they would do the TAs, but they cannot do the TAs. They cannot choose the TAs, you know. It's academic. We did it. But, But the platform on which the course runs, the, the creating the course right now actually uh, we are already after fa- four or five years uh, we are creating them themselves uh, they're, they're not creating it anymore but they, they were the ones that created the courses they had the expertise uh, and eventually you know we we may not need them 
they by the way get uh, for the net revenues uh, they get 35 percent so your faculty your faculty would work with the technicians at Udacity to create the film that you've been referring to to, to yes, create the th- this was until until uh, the last round, which is about uh, close to a year ago, when when our people in distance learning, uh, uh, in distance education, uh, are uh, are responsible for this. But they, they used to, for the first three or so years, where that was a Udacity employee. Interesting. So you now have moved that part of it in house. Is that correct? Yes. You've moved it in house. Yes. So in some sense, they are now getting their share with do, for doing nothing, uh, for using the platform. <laughs> but uh, so for them, it has become an ATM machine. It's been very positive for them. Yes, I. Though uh... so it's not you, it's not huge amount. I think. Uh, I think so far in all these years, the net was $12 million. Wow. The net of uh, $12 million. Uh, but real net is only eight because $4 million we got from AT&T. And AT- because of AT&T, we were in the black in the first two years. And since then, we are in the black anyway. So AT- without AT&T, we would start with being in the red for a number of years, which would be much more challenging. Right. I, we read an article in Inside Higher Ed. Um, you referred to uh, a researcher from Harvard that looked at your program. Yes. It was a very fascinating article several months ago that talked about uh, how Harvard and somebody from Georgia Tech did some significant right. analysis. And I, I have the article. If you don't have it, I can send you. It will appear in a major economics journal on, in January. It seems to be a very positive report. No, no, no. Hey, we we have some incredible fans. We have somebody by the name of James Gates, who is a presidential medalist. And he invited me to PICAS. You know what's PICAS? President Council of Advisors in Science and Technology. I'm not sure the current... Uh, it, it's dormant with this administration, but... Right. Uh, and I appeared before them... And he actually, in the first article in the New York Times in the summer of 2013, I may send you the, the link. Uh, he basically said about me and Sebastian that we are, uh, might, be, might be the right brothers of uh, MOOCs. <laughs> That's in, a- not in the following sense that we, we invented the MOOCs or invented something, but we are, we are actually testing whether MOOCs will fly. And they did. And they did. And he, he, is a, he is a great, great fan. So, uh, and so we have uh, quite a number of fans uh, of the program, uh, which is uh, really highly satisfying. Well, we can include the link um, yeah. so that our listeners can uh, access that. What we have read of the... Yeah, I, uh, I can send you, I can send you a, 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 my talk in OpenLX. I was, I was keynote in eight... In ten uh, educational conferences in eight countries, so uh, so that was one of them. It was in OpenEdX uh, conference in Montreal in in late May uh, of of the last year, 
Uh, so that's the most recent. Uh, I have several. Uh, for one from 2015, I have at Harvard. But I, I, there are about five versions of the, of, of the same talk. But the talk is evolving because we learn more and also the numbers grow. So I, I can send you the. I, I can send you two the New York Times article and 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 the and the what you call it the the the, the talk if you want to uh, to watch it and see what I what I missed in the podcast. That would be uh, that'd be terrific. Um, Savi, this has been fascinating. Congratulations for taking something, uh, taking this risk and playing it out for five years and having such good so let, let me finish even though you didn't ask me. So we moved to <laughs> undergraduates. Uh, the intro to computer science is now online for on-campus students that want to take it online. 35% do. We, we do it for the sixth sixth semester in, now, and now we are developing two other courses uh, from the online, uh, from for the undergraduates. Uh, it's amazing that uh, we did a survey of the students uh, that, that take the Intro to Computer Science. Uh, some, many of them are not in, entering computer scientists because some of them took AP already, and it might be some other students from other majors because everybody in Georgia takes to take computing, and they don't necessarily take it in the first semester at Georgia Tech. 91% of them say that it's as, as good or better than any course they took in Georgia Tech, the online, and 84% say it's better. But I cheated a bit because I took one of the best teachers in OMSDS to do it. And now we are preparing two more, co two more undergraduate courses. Now, uh, I have a vision about how to make a dent in the cost of higher education. Uh, you know, uh, I'm strong supporter and believer in on-campus BA. So I'm not preaching for a complete undergraduate education because undergraduate education, college, achieves several other purposes that cannot be simulated online. But we can have several pieces of the curriculum offered online. For example, the first two, three, four courses, they can do it in high school or even before coming to the university. So, and we now will have one or uh, the number will go to three courses. Uh, it's kind of like AP. Now, in the middle, you know, only 47% of Georgia Tech students finish in four years. Because, because they have co-ops, they have internships, and 60 or something percent finish in five, 80 something finish in six, and the rest finish in more, don't finish at all. As a result, you know, so the intro courses they can do it before. The, in the middle part, when they do co-ops or do internships, they can take one course. So they can make progress in the curriculum. Uh, and at the end, they can go get a job and complete the last three courses by taking OMSCS courses because uh, courses for seniors are usually the same courses as uh, master courses. Maybe with a difference in, pro difference in projects, but many, many are joint courses. So they can take it on the job. So that will shorten, not necessarily from four to three or two and a half, but from usually from five or six to a year or two less. 
And if it's priced appropriately, which is a big if, that will make a dent. It will not solve, but make a dent in the cost of higher education. Indeed. Well, that's that's incredible, and it'll be interesting to see how those... I may not be alive to see it, but that's my vision and, and dream. <laughs> yeah, I, we, think that, we think that often, too. We're not sure we'll be alive to see it. Yeah, so you've, you've talked about the fact that um, your master's degree students that are taking the program through a MOOC are not the same people that would do it face-to-face. How about undergraduate? No, undergraduate, uh, it might be the same, but university, especially high-quality university, will not lose. They simply can increase the throughput. If people are not spending, you know, the bottlenecks are dorms and classrooms. So they can accept more students because some of the students, some of the time, are not on campus. Of course, we have to learn how to schedule this. But, but, but uh, uh, the, and, and, and the better universities uh, will be able to serve more students. And they may accept a larger percentage. On the other hand, Anand Agarwal, Anand Agarwal, who is the creator and, and CEO of edX, he invented the term of micro-bachelors, which is basically, but he admits that this was uh, three years earlier, my idea, except that I didn't have the, na- the right name, uh, to have these three or four introductory courses. Now, micro-bachelors can, save, can serve university students, but also can serve uh, many, many other people that want computer science basic education without a degree. This might be people, you know, OMSCS also have many, many converts from engineering, from the sciences, even from humanities that, that get into the field. But, he, but that, that's for a degree, which is a big, big challenge. But here, the, the basic three or four courses, people can take it and then can, they can be programmers. And, and, and if you price it correctly, it wipes out all the code academies where, where they charge you through the nose for introductory programming course. It will be interesting to see how um, what, what the impact might be if the most prestigious universities continue to expand these kind of programs as you have, which allows them to admit more and more students, what the impact that might have on regional universities and other schools. So I mentioned 22 followers. So one of them is the University of Pennsylvania, and one of them is the University of Texas. In, in, uh, Penn, Penn is not... Penn is private, so you Penn, you know, uh, uh-huh. and one University of Texas, Ilosti. So these are very, very good universities. What do you think the impact of this is going to have on regional universities and liberal arts schools? It, it will have adverse effect on the really weak universities. But universities, even now, need a... a to do a good, a very good job. So some liberal arts universities, they are, have reasonable size and can devote much more attention to community building and, and other things. The things around everything. Uh, uh, plus, uh, they, everybody should have their own niche, okay? But those that do a lousy job will not exist. Right now, some of them exist. But it may affect, and that's why what we do is not uniformly popular. Some faculties see us as a threat. 
but the price but the price of higher education is insane it's too high yes we all need to be working to bring the cost down yep and you found one way to do that that has been not only bringing the cost down for students but helpful to the university as a whole to your institute in some sense, we probably could have charged more and they still would come. We could charge 10,000 or even 15,000. Some of the followers, none, none of them charge as little. Though I resisted the urge of the higher administrators because as I said, price was not my main motivation. So we, we, we stayed low and, and possibly when, if we increase it, everybody will attack us. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, but in some sense, we can do a low cost because we are cheating a little bit in the following sense. The salary of the faculty, which is one of the major components of the cost of a university, uh, is not paid by this. They are, they are already fully employed and get the salary from the on face-to-face education. So we, they get only $10,000. So, so even somebody teaches two or three courses, 30000 that's not the cost of a faculty. So, we had, so this can be done in parallel and on top of the normal university obligations. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, you have been a delight to visit with. And it's been- so thank you so much. As you noticed, I do it with pleasure. <laughs> you know, I love giving these talks. Uh, I love the reaction. You know, about five different universities invited me just to help them do the digital uh, strategic planning, like Edinburgh, one in China. So, so uh, uh, the big surprise is, uh, and we are actually overwhelmed, is what happened. You know, the, the response that there were twelve hundred stories in the media. Georgia Tech was on the list of the most innovative companies in the world by Fast Company, the third one only, and the only one in education, uh, and the innovation was OMSCS. So uh, we have not anticipated even half of what happened, and we are still a little overwhelmed and a little in cloud nine. What you're telling us is that the world uh, is reacting in a very positive way to what you've done. Uh, yes, uh, and, and and the biggest pleasure is meeting these students, and and they thank you, and they say I wouldn't do it, I couldn't do it, I wouldn't do it, and actually the Harvard people, one of the research results is they, they studied the first two cohorts, and only two percent of the students that applied to us applied to a normal face to face. It wasn't an option. Mm. You were their only option. Yes, mm. but now there, there are few other computer science programs in various early stages. So so we might have cornered the market. <laughs> kind of funny. <laughs> That's great. I'm gonna... say, thank you so much. I, I love it, and I will enjoy listening to the podcast. You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. Our guest via phone from Georgia today has been Dr. Svigalil, the John P. Imlay Jr. Dean of Computing at Georgia Institute of Technology. We thank Dr. Galil for his time, and thank you to our listeners for listening. We'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu.